0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
1: It is true. Whenever a woman expresses a need or has a need and articulates that need, all of a sudden she's a problem. Again, she's difficult.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with writer Roxane Gay about loneliness, social media, and self-exposure.
1: And it's just terrifying to tell the truth about yourself, to tell the truth about what it's like to live in your body.
2: Debbie interviewed Roxane Gay at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn on March 2nd, 2019. First, a word from Debbie from our sponsors, then her interview with Roxanne Gay in front of a live audience.
0: Design Matters is supported by some wonderful patrons, Adobe and Wix.com. Are you an introvert, an extrovert, or both? I think the human desire for self-knowledge is universal. I mean, who can't get enough of personality tests like Myers-Briggs or the Proust Questionnaire? Well, now there's a new test in town that has been created especially for creative people. It's called Creative Types. It is the brainchild of the Adobe Create team. It's really fun, and it's absolutely free. The Creative Types test is an exploration of the many faces of the creative personality. Grounded in decades of psychological research, the test assesses your basic habits and tendencies. It will help you understand how you think, how you act, and how you see the world in an effort to help you better understand who you are as a creative individual. Take the test and you will also discover which one of eight fascinating creative types you are. You'll learn about your personal strengths and challenges, even your ideal collaborators. Everyone has a creative type. What's yours? Go to MyCreativeType.com and you can discover your personal creative personality. Support for Design Matters is also provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Debbie Millman is joined today by a very, very special guest, a bad ass fuck feminist womanist professor, editor, social commentator, writer, internet gangster, Fellow Haitian American Roxanne Gay. So I want to bring Ms. Debbie Millman and Ms. Roxanne Gay to the stage. Welcome to On Air Fest, y'all. That was a pretty badass interview. Yeah. Yes, uh, it
1: was. I feel super introduced and. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I'm an internet gangster on Twitter.
0: Well, actually, I think that the gangster part might go a little bit further back. I understand that in your high school yearbook, there's a note from a girl who wrote, I like you, even though you are very mean. (laughs) So were you really mean in high school? (laughs)
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, no I wasn't. I was really shy and awkward, but apparently my memory of myself and people's memories of me are very different things. And I do remember probably in my sophomore year or so I developed a mean streak. And it wasn't bullying or anything like that, but if I had something biting to say, I said it. I had no filter.
0: Do you remember any of the more biting things you might have done? (laughs) No, I don't.
1: (laughs) Thank God. I have absolved myself of all of those sins, conveniently. Uh, So I don't remember what I said.
0: Now, you've stated that in many ways, likability is a very elaborate lie, a performance, a code of conduct dictating the proper way to be left to our own devices. Do you think that we're all really diabolical deep down inside, Roxanne? I hope so. (laughs) I, I genuinely hope so. No, I don't
1: think we're all diabolical deep down inside, but I think we have imperfections and darknesses inside of us, and some of us are better at hiding them than others. But I never trust anyone who seems perfect and incredibly likable and incredibly nice. I always just think, what's going on under there? So all of like the HGTV hosts, um, anyone who appears in a Hallmark Channel movie. Kelly Rippa. Yes,
0: I just think, no offense to Kelly, we love her.
1: No, I just, whenever I see these people in this performance of niceness, I just think, my God, you are probably the cruelest person alive. And so I think it's more healthy when we at least acknowledge those parts of ourselves. And I think maturity is knowing when to release that and when not to. And so hopefully I have, since high school, matured at least a bit. Except on Twitter. What? (laughs) What are you trying to say?
0: Uh, We'll get to that. Uh. Uh, (laughs) You quoted Lionel Shriver in an essay for the Financial Times about the notion of liking, and he states this. Liking business has two components, moral approval and affection. And I'm wondering how much do you feel the need for the approval of others?
1: Oh, I I feel it a great deal. Like any good self-loathing writer. All I want is approval. Um, I think it comes from being Catholic. Really? Oh, yeah. And just like expecting the priest to listen to your confessions and then hopefully telling you, oh, you did fewer sins this week. Good job. (laughs) Which I never heard. Um, But no, I do, I think like many people care too much about what other people think and seek the approval of others, which is one of the reasons I think I work so hard, is just thinking, okay, am I finally good enough? Am I finally doing enough to earn my keep in this world? Do you think you'll ever feel that it is enough? I would like to think so, but I don't know. Has it changed as you've gotten more successful? The more successful I get, the less successful I feel. Why? Because I keep moving the bar for myself. I keep telling myself, oh, this is not enough, or that was luck, or that was a fluke. And I never really allow myself to enjoy any accolade or rest on my laurels, so to speak.
0: Not even for a moment? Like the first well, moment you hear there's about like
1: There's always that first moment when I get like a really good email where I just think, ah. And then five minutes later, I'm like, oh, how am I going to top this?
0: <laughs> so it's, it's a lot. How do you keep pushing through that sense of it not being enough? Or do you want to? Um,
1: I mean, I would like to. I would like to get to a place where I understand what satisfaction feels like, where I think, okay, I've done enough for today, for this week, for this life, but-
0: I mean, you could say that right now, objectively. I don't know. <laughs> uh, really, I mean, uh, bad depends feminists on how is high, a bit of a It depends fluke. on how high the bar is today. Yeah,
1: the bar is very high. I don't know that anyone could ever reach the bar. So I'm working on lowering the bar and just being like comfortable with mediocrity.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: let's see how long that lasts. <laughs> um, in the New York Times review of your book, Difficult Women, the author declares, what constitutes a difficult woman? For Roxane Gay, she's easy. By the third date, one of her troubled, troublesome narrators tells us We have already slept together twice. I'm not a hard sell. She's also needy, moody, and above all unpredictable, which makes her dangerous." When I read that, I thought, that doesn't really sound like the definition of difficult to me. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about why that even is something that is posited as difficult. Sounds interesting.
1: It does sound interesting. I think any time a woman demonstrates any amount of personality, self-actualization, or free will, we're like, oh, this bitch is fucking difficult. <laughs> and that's really frustrating because we have these very limiting categories into which we like to put women and contain them. So anytime you try and get out of those categories, um, you start to create problems. And so it's interesting uh, and I don't think it's actually difficult, but I do think we are considered difficult in those circumstances. And so especially in Difficult Women, I was trying to explore what are the circumstances in which a woman is behaving in a completely rational and normal way and is considered difficult.
0: And we see that over and over and over again, whether it be Serena Williams, whether it be mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. And you've said that you want characters to do bad things and get away with their misdeeds. Yes. You. You want characters to think ugly thoughts and make ugly decisions. You Mm -hmm. want characters to make mistakes and put themselves first without apologizing for it. And as I was reading those lines, I was wishing that I could be a person like that. Like that is the definition of, for me, what a happy woman looks like. (laughs) Um, And I'm wondering if there was any projection in those lines for yourself too, because it really does sound like the perfect woman.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> I am the perfect woman. <laughs> Ha-ha. She said she was easy. <laughs> um, I mean, my fiction is indeed fiction. It is made up. But there's always a lot of wishful thinking, and I wish I could do this. I wish I could behave in this way. I wish I could say this without consequence. Um, but you could. I mean, well, now you could. you could, could but there are always consequences. And so I think about consequences, and this goes back to, of course, caring about the approval of others. And so oftentimes, especially in difficult women, those women are doing the kinds of things that I think a lot of women would love to do if they were
0: freed from the constraints of womanhood in the world as it is. In an essay about film and the characters in The Hunger Games, you wrote for The Rumpus, uh, which is also in your essay collection, Bad Feminist, you write I am fascinated by strength in women. People tend to think I'm strong. I'm not. Mm
2: -hmm. And yet.
0: What happens after the end yet? And yet, here I am
1: still standing. So clearly, there's some measure of strength in me.
0: You really don't think that you're strong? You wouldn't identify as being strong?
1: Not really. I mean, before I I knew you, I was
0: terrified. I was terrified by your Twitter presence. I was terrified by your... Success. I was terrified by your stature. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Hmm. We'll have to get into that a little later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, I, I oftentimes feel terrified myself. And a lot of times people tell me, oh, you're so brave. You're so strong. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, no, I'm not. I'm watching... HGTV in my pajamas and I haven't opened my laptop in two days (laughs) and I have two books due. No, I'm not brave. I'm uh, perpetually failing. So I'd never feel strong and And one of the things I write about in Bad Feminist, and also Hunger for That Matter, is this idea that surviving means that you're strong. And I don't know that that's the case, especially for me.
0: Well, i actually get you that quote, because I I did want to talk to you (laughs) about that. Wow, you came prepared. I did. Can you imagine? No. Um, (laughs) Because it's really, it's quite a good quote, but I I actually don't agree with you. Um, You said, just because you survive something does not mean you're strong. Just mm-hmm. because you survive something does not mean you're strong. And, and I don't know that I agree. I think that if you survive something, that's, that's table stakes for strong, for me.
1: Yeah, I guess, I, again, it's raising the bar. Like, oh, oh, great, you survived the unsurvivable. Big deal, who doesn't?
0: And- Oh, there are a lot of people that don't.
1: I know, and so it's not fair to myself, but I, I, I am consistently raising the bar in terms of even strength and uh, what that looks like and what that is. And I think also it just makes me uncomfortable to consider myself strong. And I don't know why. I think it's because I don't wanna be seen as uh, having airs about myself. Like, uh, like, calm down there, sister. Are you really strong or are you just human?
0: Well, I I feel that way about the word brave. The word brave, I actually bristle when Mm -hmm. when that is referred to anything that I might be doing or have done. Um, Strong, I sort of feel I've earned in some ways, but brave feels as if you're still in the midst of actually getting over something. I think you could only really be brave once you're over whatever it is that victimized you.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I find the word brave is ubiquitous these days and overused. Like anytime like a woman blinks, oh my God, you're so brave. <laughs> and again, I think that sometimes the bar is too low for certain things. And I think sometimes we project bravery onto others when they do things we can't do ourselves. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's brave. Um, but again, you know, I don't know. my barometer on all of this is so hopelessly damaged that I, I'm not the measure.
0: <laughs> what do
1: you think makes a person strong? That's a good question. I think resilience does play into it, but I think what makes a person strong is the way in which they survive something, the way in which they endure. Um, do you endure boldly or not? And I also think strength is about being able to have self-awareness to acknowledge mistakes and to acknowledge failures. Uh, And I think that might be why I struggle with considering myself strong. There are lots of things that I can do, but I'm not so great with failure. And I'm deeply afraid of failure. And so I just think I'll be
0: strong when I can better handle failure. What failure do you feel like you've encountered oh so much
1: so much all the time every day there's a small failure to con- contend with you know whenever like a project doesn't work out or you know i don't succeed at something the very first time again my bar is not a
0: good bar. But you must have been a really problematic baby. I was. I was just like,
2: ah.
1: I can't walk. Oh I my God. I can't believe it. I'm four months old and I'm just <laughs> rolling around. What the fuck? <laughs> it was terrible. Um, I was really hard on myself as a child. I um, I remember once in kindergarten... Uh, we had a a drawing assignment in school and there were two glasses on a piece of paper and we were learning fractions and they said color in half of the picture. So I colored in half of one glass and I got an F on the assignment. Now, what kind of school gives a kindergartner an F? Your school. (laughs) Yeah. I was so mortified that I stuck the paper with the F on it in the bus seat and the bus driver took it out and brought it to the house and gave it to my parents. I'm still angry at him. How dare you? Same bus driver, by the way, my parents told me two days ago, dropped me off at the wrong house once. And I just started walking around and my mom was driving around and found me. Wild. How did he keep his job? The 70s were a different
0: time. They were a very different time. I don't know. In in the same article um, about The Hunger Games, you write, Loneliness was the one familiar thing making me this bottomless pit of need, open and gaping and desperate for anything to fill me up. I should not be this way, but I am. And the topic of loneliness comes up several times in both Bad Feminist and Hunger. I actually did uh, a search for those words specifically in both books. And, and they're quite prevalent, you detail how you felt lonely even as a little girl. Do you still?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes and no. I did very much as a child because we moved around a lot, like every year moved around because my dad's an engineer and we would move to where the construction project was. He builds tunnels. So I never had time to really develop a sense of community and develop meaningful and lasting friendships. Plus, I was shy, awkward, nerdy. So it was just that deadly trifecta of you will never have a prom date. Don't forget mean. Yes. I mean, wow. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so it's only in the past few years that I've started to develop, well, I've, I would say since graduate school that I've developed these like, truly meaningful friendships. Um, I don't have a lot of friends, but I have very good friends and very loyal friends, and I am loyal to them as well.
0: So I would say I am the least lonely I've ever been. Do you associate loneliness with that bottomless pit of need? I've been also called a bottomless pit of need by various exes, which is why they're exes. They Um, are. Thank goodness. (laughs) But I I think that it's interesting that most people don't call men needy. It's Mm -hmm. almost as if having needs as a woman just automatically makes you needy. And I think men have the same needs and, and then some. Yes,
1: they do. I find men to be deeply emotional and high maintenance. Uh, Which is why generally I don't associate with them. Um, And it is true. Whenever a woman expresses a need or has a need and articulates that need, all of a sudden she's a problem. Again, she's difficult and she's needy. Uh, And so I do associate loneliness with neediness. This idea that I need companionship, that I'm not a self-sustaining unit. Uh, or a robot uh, is problematic for me <laughs> but I'm okay with it now like the older I get once I turned 40 I just had so few fucks to give about anything that I've just started to also embrace certain things about myself like oh yes you enjoy companionship how dare you you're like everyone else Roxanne you're not special So. I do see it less and less as a problem, and also I feel it less and less because I have really good people in my life.
0: You said that this started to change when you turn 40. When mm-hmm. you turn 40, you have less fucks to give. I'm yes. in my 50s, I still have a lot of fucks to give. How did, I don't know that it's necessarily age-related. Uh,
1: for me, it was. I don't know like if it was age and where I was at that point in my life, but it just... I just realized, well, I'm sort of cresting, whatever, this is it, and
0: it's all sort of downhill from here, so whatever happens, happens, let's see, Um, yeah. Reading seemed incredibly important to you when you were lonely, and growing up, I understand you read everything you can get your hands on, and mm-hmm. you've written about how when you were reading, you were never lonely or tormented or scared, and most recently in your introduction to the 2018 edition of Best American Short Stories, you write that in times of great personal or public upheaval, you turn to reading. Now, in times of great personal or public upheaval, I turn to drinking, mm-hmm. um, and and so I'm wondering how reading actually helps. Oh, because reading, well, I do drink while I read. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should start reading while I drink. Yes, I'm a
1: multitasker. <laughs> I'm a Libra. What can I say? Um, reading, I find, provides escape. And if it doesn't provide escape, it provides solace. And so even now, like, I love reading. Yesterday, I had the shittiest travel day known to man. And so... I read on the entire flight. I just could not be bothered to do anything else. And it was fantastic. I read this incredible memoir called How We Fight For Our Lives by Saeed Jones. Yes. And I was completely immersed in his life, in his childhood in Texas and then Atlanta and then college in Western Kentucky. And I completely forgot about the fact that my flight was delayed for two hours. And that was really nice. And I have also used reading to escape far more serious things. And when I was a child and I was dealing with sexual assault, reading showed me a language for what I had been through and that I wasn't alone and that perhaps I would get to the other side of it. And so it's just so useful to me. It's also how
0: I learned about sex. After the sexual assault, you realized as an adult, how desperately you had sacrificed yourself for love and attention, and how little you felt you deserved. And in Hunger, you write, I was a gaping wound of need. I couldn't admit this to myself, but there was a pattern of intense emotional masochism, of throwing myself into the most dramatic relationships possible, of needing to be a victim of some kind over and over and over. That was something familiar, something I understood. And yet you go on to state that you dated assholes because you were lazy. And I'm wondering what does being lazy have to do with dating an asshole?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Yay. Oh, thank you. Um, because when you're dating an asshole, you generally know it, they can't really hide it. And so I generally, when I date an asshole, I'm just like, "Eh. oh, well, I know you're an asshole, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to break up with you. (laughs) I'm just going to deal with it. And so when I know that, like when I'm feeling particularly lazy, it's just like I could do better. This person is not great, but they're good enough. It's okay. It's adequate. And you didn't feel like you deserved more. No, I didn't. I just thought, well, this is as good as it's gonna get. So he's an asshole, whatever. And you know, it's really a hard thing to decide that you deserve better, that you decide that you deserve love, tenderness, mutuality. And especially in my 30s and my 20s, it just didn't even seem like a possibility to me.
0: How did you break the pattern?
1: I turned 40. (laughs) So much happened when I turned 40. (laughs) It was just like a choir of angels. Just lots of luck. No, I think I just started to date women again, (laughs) which goes a long way. Though women can be assholes, um, I hear. But it just, I think something about getting older and realizing I don't wanna feel this terrible all the time anymore. And I can be alone, which was an incredibly important realization that I can be alone even if I would prefer not to. And then, just you know, when you are loved by the right person, a whole world of possibility opens up.
0: How did you get the courage to finally be alone?
1: Oh, I think you just hit a wall. You hit a point where you just think, I cannot be in this dysfunctional relationship for one second longer, and I would rather be alone than put up with this for one moment longer. And unfortunately, my threshold is very high for nonsense. And so it took me a long time to get there. But once I got there, I just realized, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm very amusing, and I can amuse the shit out of myself. And also, I have cable, like not I do, I do. I don't have like the thing where you have sign up for five different services. I have actual old people cable. And so all the channels come to my house and uh, worlds of possibility. My favorite show right now is Forged in Fire History Channel. It's a sword making competition. It's like Chopped, but for sword makers. (laughs) She doesn't watch any reality television, so every time I'm like, let's watch Vanderpump Rules, she's like, hmm, what is that? Like, why am I dating you? What's going on?
0: (laughs) Now, you said that your threshold is very high, Mm -hmm. but yet it's very low on Twitter. You don't accept any abuse on Twitter. You are a Twitter gangster. Yes. So talk about why that dichotomy of being so so much a punching bag over the history of your life, but so unwilling to accept even the slightest clap online.
1: You've answered your own question. How is that? Because I have tolerated so much nonsense and bullshit in my actual life. On Twitter, I just refuse. Like, no, you are not going to speak to me this way. Do not even think about it. Especially when you have eight followers. Like, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? Like, The other day, a man with eight followers tweeted at me, no one cares. (laughs) Just factually, 567,000 people care what I say. And eight people care what you say. Just, and it's just the, just how dare you? And the audacity. And the thing is, so many of these idiots on Twitter really step to me like they're making some sort of grand and profound argument. They're not. And it's very easy, and I've said this before, but it's like T-ball. You know when you play T-ball, and there's a stick and the ball is on the stick, and so you can't miss the ball? Well, some kids do, but for me, Twitter is like T-ball, where these idiots put themselves right on the stick. And it's just like, well, I mean, if you're gonna serve it up, I guess I'll hit the ball <laughs> and it's deeply satisfying, but it also, <laughs> it is. It's um, one of my favorite things to do, but also it's to let people see the level of harassment that a black queer woman gets online. It's constant and pervasive. Oftentimes it's deeply cruel, especially when you live in a fat body and it's not okay. You don't get to talk to people this way and think it's fine. and. More and more I find when you push back, a lot of them cry and they just get upset or they say, oh my God, I'm sorry, You know, I'm just having a bad day. Well, you know what? Your bad day is not my problem. So don't make it
0: my problem. Yeah, I have no tolerance. What I find so interesting about the clapbacks is how often the person deletes the tweet (laughs) that they sent you. Mm Um, because I like to go look at what it is you're responding to. And often that tweet is no longer available. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what the strength that person has. That moment where they think it's okay to do this. Mm-hmm.
1: Because, because they it's... think there's not going to be any pushback. Right. They think it's okay to just like say whatever the fuck. But if they no. follow
0: you, they know that that's not the case. So well, I often A lot wonder... of them don't follow me. So they just...
1: It's like someone retweets me into their timeline. Okay. And they're like, oh, this woman believes women are people. I have something to say about that.
0: Yeah. Person with eight followers. But
1: also some of my followers do it too. And I just think, hmm, not paying attention. It's right there in my bio. If you clap, I will clap back. So I I
0: provided a disclaimer. This range that you have, I find it really fascinating. And in bad feminist, you state that you approach most things in life with a dangerous level of confidence to balance your generally low Mm self-esteem. And that's a really interesting response to dangerously low self-esteem, to put yourself out there in that way. Mm -hmm. The times that I get claps on Twitter, I generally ignore them, mostly because I'm afraid to engage. I'm afraid I don't. to. I know you don't. <laughs> Thank you for defending my honor. <laughs> but I still worry about mm-hmm. the pleasing of, the seeming angry, the seeming like I care about this, to giving it attention. Tell me how you balance that lack of self esteem or what you perceive as a lack of self esteem with that outward confidence. Well,
1: I've been on the internet since 1992, back when we had like 600 baud modems, 300 baud modems. So I have been on the internet for a long time. And in many ways, I feel very comfortable and more comfortable on the internet. So while I might have low self-esteem in the physical world, in the virtual world, I'm very confident. So where does that come from? Because you're freed from the constraints of your physical self in the virtual world. You can be anything. You can be anyone. You can say that sort of witty retort that you never have, like when you're walking down the street and someone says something mean to you. Like for me on Twitter, I have it right there for whatever reason. And I don't quite know why, but I just have that ability to say exactly what I want to say when I want to say it. So I don't feel as, constrained by self-esteem because I just believe in my right to say what I want to say. And the thing is, I don't go looking for trouble. I don't believe in being cruel. It's when you come to me with your nonsense that I push back. And so that also helps me to be confident because in general, I'm a kind and fun person. And I believe for the most part, my online demeanor reflects that, except I also love to complain. Why? Oh, it's my favorite thing. Why? Just, it feels so good it just like just to articulate these are my woes today. It just feels really good. Like yes. My you know my stomach hurts. Uh, I didn't
0: sleep enough. So I just enjoy complaining. I get it from my mother. What you see as complaining might just be seen by somebody else as being honest about how you feel in mm-hmm. Bad Feminist, you say you're full of longing and you're full of envy, and so much of my envy is terrible. Mm-hmm. Most people, if they felt that they were full of envy and that envy was terrible, would hide it. You don't.
1: No, there's no need.
0: Again, 40. It was a game changer. It really was. I just. I love how you're just putting so much on that age change well I think it was also, 39 you know the night last day of you being 39 oh, eleven fifty nine p.m then becomes, I turned
1: 40 I was like oh my woo. god I won the lottery <laughs> I'm healed no but I also I mean it just happens to be 40 I don't know that it would have happened to me at 40 if other things hadn't also fallen into place but that's when my writing career really took off that's when I became independently financially comfortable that's um, when I got tenure at my day job. And so tenure makes a lot of things possible. You can say whatever you want. Can't get fired. (laughs) And so I was like, the white boys do this all the time, so I'm going to fucking ride this tenure thing out. It's great. It really just, so all of those things happened around the same time and enabled me to feel just more empowered with just owning who I am, owning the fact that I experience envy, and that I have desires.
0: Where do you think the envy comes from?
1: Oh, just, I don't, human nature. I think a lot of us deal with envy. You know, whenever people are like, oh, I don't, I don't get jealous. (laughs) Really? I get jealous all the time.
0: Like, I live in a constant state of jealousy. Yes.
1: And so, like, I mean, I get jealous of, like, what are you doing looking at your phone? And then I'll just look at my own phone Um, as a deeply inconsistent person. I just,
0: I think it's just this idea of wanting to be the center of the universe. You begin the book Hunger with this statement. Everybody has a story and a history. Here I offer mine with a memoir of my body and my hunger. Writing this book is a confession. These are the ugliest, weakest, barest parts of me. Roxanne, what about the book do you find to be ugly or weak or what part of the bareness is something that you don't like?
1: Well, with hunger, It was a book about my body. Now, when you live in a fat body and you move through the world, people make assumptions. They see you, they think they know the story of your body. And with hunger, I was telling the truth of my body. And some of it may have met people's expectations, and some of it may not have. And it's just terrifying to tell the truth about yourself, to tell the truth about what it's like to live in your body. And parts of it felt ugly to me. Sometimes the truth feels ugly. It feels like it's too much, it's too needful. And especially when I was writing that book, which was definitely the most difficult thing I've ever done, professionally at least, it just felt like, oh, this is hateful, hideous stuff. And part of that, of course, is shaped by misogyny and fatphobia, and even though you think I, I've, I, I'm against these things. You internalize them nonetheless. And so a lot of that was just internalized self-hatred
0: um, brought about by what it means to be a woman in this world. Reading Hunger, I think, was my first foray into falling in love with you. So mm. well, what was it like for you to I like read- how you just I dropped that little on. snippet. <laughs> what was it like for you to receive such an immensely positive reaction to something that was so difficult to write? Uh, It was good. It was good. It was great. Did you ever feel nervous about everything that you'd put out there?
1: Oh, yeah. I was terrified. I was deeply, deeply terrified. I was just deeply terrified. What are people going to think? What are they going to say? And yet people have responded in in really moving and profound ways ever since the book came out. Like women come up to me and just tell me, oh, my God, I see myself in this book and I feel kinship. It got me a girlfriend. Um... (laughs) which is pretty great. So it was a lot of really good things came from that book. And also it really helped me to recognize the chip on my shoulder where I think that only people who know experiences like mine can understand what it's like to feel need and to feel hunger and to feel loneliness. And the book has shown me that, no, lots of people feel this way and lots of people can connect to what's truly at the heart of this story. And so that's been really meaningful as well.
0: Toward the end of hunger, you write that you no longer need the body fortress Mm -hmm. that you built and that you would now focus on undestroying yourself. Mm -hmm. How are you doing with that? Oh, so far so good. Uh, You know,
1: I'm doing, after I finished this book, it really forced me to take a hard look at myself and some of the behaviors I've developed over the past 20 or 30 years like and what? like what um just like emotional eating self-loathing just like it's one thing to say I have really bad self-esteem but at some point you should probably do something about it and so I went back to therapy which has been great he's yeah I highly recommend it it's very expensive like this guy I'm just like I went into the wrong field but he's worth it I guess he's kind of an asshole What makes
0: him an asshole? He tells me things I don't want (laughs) to hear. That just sounds like honest. Yes.
1: And so that's been part of it. And then in January of 2018, I had weight loss surgery. And that has been interesting. In what way? Well, I put it off for many, many years. And I think the surgery is horrific and barbaric. I think that it should be... Something you go into very carefully and I think that medicine is just like this is the only cure and I think they force it on people and Don't tell people the truth of it and like how radically you have to change everything about your life to do it But I knew thankfully because I had taken ten years to make the decision But it was just very like even though you know what you're getting into you don't really know and So that was
0: was interesting. You stated this about that experience in an article uh, that you wrote, an essay that you wrote about it on Medium. The truth is that my desire for weight loss has long been about satisfying other people more than myself, finding a way to fit more peacefully into a world that is not at all interested in accommodating a body like mine. And the dominant cultural attitude toward fatness is that the fat body is a medical problem and a drain on society. And you've lost quite a bit of weight since your surgery. Do you feel resentful about satisfying other people with the amount of weight that you've lost? Or when people say, oh, Roxanne, you've lost so much weight. Yeah, I feel deeply resentful. It just pisses me off. But then I get mad when they don't
1: say anything. (laughs) Like, how dare you? I've lost a person. Um, So it's again it's just such a difficult space to inhabit where you like i deeply resent that now all of a sudden people are like even friends te- like the other day a friend texted me oh my god you're looking so great like why didn't you tell me this in december 2017 i mean really like uh, it's frustrating but i i get it i guess but it's frustrating and you know when people say congratulations i just especially as I deepen my awareness of fat positivity, I just think, what are you really congratulating me for? I think you're congratulating me for making you feel more comfortable about being around my body. So I actually, the more weight I lose, the more radically I'm like, fuck you, stay fat. (laughs) Do you feel differently about yourself and your appearance? Unfortunately, I do. I mean, but I I think it's more that so much more of the world is slowly opening up to me that I didn't realize I didn't even have access to. Like what? Um, Just being able to move around better, to be able to walk for miles at a time, whereas before it was steps, just a better range of clothing options. Like I can buy clothes in stores now, which is not something that has previously been an option. I mean, like two stores, but still, that's two more stores than before. Torrid, I'm telling you what, their clothes are for young people, but I don't care. <laughs> I wear them, and they're very breasty, but so am I, so it's fine. Um, it's just great to have those options, and so, it, like, when you can feel better and look better and have more options, you start to feel better about yourself, and so it's all connected, and, uh, you know, I, I'm... Struggling with some of the reasons why, but still,
0: whatever. You're working on a new magazine for Medium mm-hmm. called Gay. Good name. <laughs> a very good name. Three new books, a collection of essays, a graphic novel. You're working on several screenplays, and you have a new podcast in the works. <laughs> Where does all this drive come from, girl? Um,
1: I just am relentless in my ambition. I want to rule the world, so... <laughs>
0: One step at a time. Roxanne, my last question for you is this. Mm -hmm. In June of 2011, on Bookslut, you wrote this. In one of my more elaborate, embarrassing flights of fancy... I won an Oscar for writing the best adapted screenplay based on my best-selling novel, which has graced the New York Times bestseller list for at least 57 weeks. At the Oscar ceremony, I am wearing something flawless by a designer with a long, exotic name. My hair and face are beat. I don't trip when I walk up the stairs in my boutons to accept my honor. Wow. You wrote this in 2011. Mm-hmm. That seemed really far away for you at the time. A flight of fancy was how you put it. doesn't seem so outlandish now, does it? No, it
1: doesn't. Right? I'm literally like two and a half, three years from my Oscar, I feel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Roxanne, thank you for joining me today at the On Air Fest for this live episode of Design Matters. And thank you for bringing so much magnificence into the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Roxanne fucking Gay. Oh, sit down.
1: (laughs)
2: Thank you so much. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.